I'm Debbie Georgettis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Columbus Day. The impeachment sham is ramping up. Beto LGBTQ trumps God and liberal lies that hurt kids. And finally, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. For today's first five, I want to talk about Columbus Day. Today is Columbus Day. It's a holiday we've celebrated in America since around 1891, and it is just a holiday to remember the Italian explorer, Christopher Columbus, who was sent on a voyage across the sea by actually the Spanish government, the Spanish monarchy, and he's the one that all of us learned elementary school in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You likely know that. Well. More and more people are uh, talking essentially about a, uh, an argument against celebrating Columbus Day. And specifically, what they're talking about is the idea that uh, Christopher Columbus, in these four cross-ocean excursions, which he led, again, Italian guy put into these boats or led these excursions, uh, or uh, I guess they weren't excursions, that's kind of a fancy word, uh, led these uh, adventures into the New World and four different times times crossed the ocean made it back safely. The reason he's being criticized and some people are actually wanting to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day is that in the course of that of his adventures, of his travels and places he landed and places he went to besides coming to America, um, there was horrific mistreatment of some of the indigenous people. There was, whether at his hand or hand of others, there was conduct toward the indigenous people that was uh, brutal, uh, conquering, violent, uh, also just a spread of diseases brought to the New World, brought to America, um, that were that the native the people native to this land did not have any immunity against. So they the spread of measles, other diseases, throughout the indigenous population in America and other places. All that added up to say that the some places, in fact, is now it's either four or six states and 130 U.S. cities, towns, or counties have declared that no longer, including my own here in Dallas. Texas uh, concluded they would no longer celebrate Columbus Day and said they're going to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. And I have to tell you folks, I really have a problem with that, and that is this. If you study history, an iota of world history, you know that Islamic conquest in our world, in our history, began during the time Muhammad was still alive in Medina. He was still alive in the area in er, the area where he founded Islam. Even during his lifetime, he launched attacks against other peoples, uh, Jewish peoples, other uh, you know pagans or whatever the term they would use then, uh, Christians engaged in violent, conquering attacks in his own life. One battle, battle of the trench, Muhammad personally participated in slaughtering, beheading somewhere between 600 and 900 Jewish people. Following the death of Muhammad and throughout the next 1400 plus years, the history of Islam has been one of violent, grotesque, brutal conquest, killing millions of people. Let me just name some of the countries that Islam took over in their conquest spreading of Islam. This wasn't like a friendly gesture to new lands. Could we please share our wonderful new faith with you? This was convert to Islam, worship Allah, or we'll kill you. The people who wouldn't immediately surrender were killed. We are talking about millions and millions of people killed at the hands of Muslim uh, you know, you can't even call it just conquerors, violent Muslim jihadists, literally in the millions of people around the world, continuing to this day, we have the, the countries that were conquered and violently, brutally attacked by the Muslims, Qatar, Oman, UAE, Kuwait, Iraq, Iran, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Egypt, Libya, Algeria, Morocco, West Sahara, Mauritius, uh, Nigeria, Senegal, Sudan, Somalia, India, Pakistan. I could read and read and read. The point is this. 
the people who are making a fuss about not wanting to celebrate Columbus Day are being selectively, unfairly discriminatory. They're deciding because Christopher Columbus engaged in the same kind of conduct, or his people did, is alleged to have engaged in that, because his people engaged in that conduct, Christopher Columbus's uh, people on the ships with him, that all of us need to denounce him forever, can never praise him, we can't even have a national holiday honoring his discovery of America, but those same people are dead silent when it comes to acknowledging the truth of the unbelievably grotesque history of brutal violence at the hands of Muhammad and Islamic followers around this world, Islamic conquest, 1400 years and still going, those same people, those politically correct people who are attacking Columbus will never say a word about Muhammad or the Islamic conquest that killed millions and millions of people throughout world history. The point being, the people attacking Christopher Columbus and Columbus Day are not really upset about Christopher Columbus and Columbus Day. They're upset because the whole idea of Christopher Columbus, the discovery of America, what America became, the leader of liberty in the world, the country that established the most extraordinary founding ever, ever accomplished in world history, a founding based on the idea of the Declaration of Independence, the whole idea of America, came about because of the Western expansion from Western Europe coming over to what they then called the New World, establishing a new civilization, establishing a new country, this country that became the United States of America. Leftist attacks on Columbus Day are about not wanting to honor America. They're about not wanting to agree that despite and no excuse for the violence at the hands of Christopher Columbus or anyone on his ships, and no excuse made for the violence of Muhammad and his endless Islamic conquests ongoing from 1400 years from the founding till today. No, none of that conquest was right. All of it was bad. The spreading of the evil of Islam around the world has harmed people far more than the spreading of the, uh, the bringing to the new world, the civilization of Europe, establishing Western civilization essentially in America. Bottom line in today's first five is that be very, very careful not to be drawn in to the arguments of the left that honoring Christopher Columbus means that you don't care about indigenous people and you don't care about the violence that they suffered during the time they were in there, uh, during the time, this era of, of conquering, of conquest, of exploration in world history. The left is just is yet another excuse to stir people up into disdain for America, hatred of America, criticism of America's founding, criticism of America as an evil, horrible country founded by a really, really bad guy who did bad things. This is an attempt to spread the left-wing antagonism of the idea and the goodness of America. So again, I say for our first five closing out, my friends, happy Columbus Day. Moving on, I want to talk about today about the impeachment sham uh, ramping up. Folks, I got to tell you, if you think these leftists in Washington are on fire for impeachment, that, that's, just, that's just the beginning, the, the, very, the very teasing beginning of what is happening in Washington. I want to bring up to date to just a few things that happened since we last uh, talked last week. The uh, House members did have a closed hearing, a closed deposition, in which they took testimony from the former American ambassador to the Ukraine, Maria Yovanovitch, and she was actually a holdover. I'm pretty sure she was an ambassador to Ukraine under Obama. Trump kept her on, and then President Trump came to realize that this uh, ambassador, Yovanovitch, this American ambassador to the Ukraine, was essentially undermining and, in fact, maligning President Trump and the new administration. One key item that we did that came to America's attention was that when the Ukrainian officials wanted, after Trump was elected, Ukrainian officials wanted to present to America's government, to the State Department, that they had evidence of wrongdoing by the Biden, you know, Ukraine, Burisma deal, evidence of corruption under the previous administration, that this woman, she was in the tank for the Obama-Biden team. Our ambassador then, of course, reporting to Trump, blocked the Ukrainian officials from getting visas 
so they could come over to America to present their evidence. They're thinking, why wouldn't the American government want evidence we've uncovered of wrongdoing? But this ambassador is really working, even though she's allegedly working for Trump, because he's now the president, she's really in the team of Obama and Biden. He fired her last, I think it was May or so. She testified in Congress on this past uh, Friday in a closed hearing, which leads me to my next point in a moment. But she's very much there to malign and hand wring and complain about President Obama. Point being, of course, she is not on Obama's team, never was, was apparently word getting back to Trump that she was undermining him in many, many ways. Apparently nothing of substance came from her testimony or else, of course, we'd be hearing about it. But I also want to think it was a great thing that Jim Jordan, so this is uh, this update, the sham ramp, this is a sham of impeachment. The ramp up is going. They had her coming, trying to add kind of fodder to the argument that Trump has somehow engaged in wrongdoing and the way he spoke on the phone with Zelensky uh, on July 25th. This is the whole basis of this impeachment. You have to get this. The whole basis of this impeachment is because uh, this effort to impeach is President Trump doing his job as president, talked to the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, on the phone July 25th and asked, aren't you essentially, aren't you going to look into the Biden corruption in the Ukraine in 2016? Adam Schiff and the other leftists running the U.S. House have decided they have to go with anything they can to get Trump out. Anything they can. That is the mission. The mission is not to investigate, to discern, determine, discern whether or not an impeachable offense occurred. It is to find something they can use to bring about impeachment. It's actually a little bit coming to a head this week. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, has indicated she may actually call for the vote this week. She was trying very hard not to call for the vote because she doesn't want the Democrats who are representing states where Trump won in that state. She doesn't want to have to deal with that, but she is, uh, her hand may be being forced. It appears that she's going to have to call for the impeachment vote. So even if she got that, so that they get the vote and they get a number of Democrats to vote based on, again, nothing, they've got to go forward with proving the case for impeachment, which involves, of course, bringing forward this alleged whistleblower Who's the one who this whistleblower submitted a complaint to Congress claiming that he, as a whistleblower, saw something, heard something, you just have to speak up, you know, had didn't really hear the Ukraine, the conversation with President Trump and the Ukrainian guy, but, you know, heard about it. So he wrote a secondhand report. We've been over this before. Secondhand whistleblower complaint. Acknowledge he hadn't heard a darn thing. But some things that have come out about this whistleblower, I want to be sure and share with you. Although he has not been yet identified by name, many people think the whistleblower is probably this guy, Eric Ciaramello. Eric Ciaramello, not known yet, but the suspected whistleblower. And this guy is in, you know, knee deep with the Democrats, or I should, uh, neck deep with the Democrats, not just because he happened to be a whistleblower who innocently came along, but because he, in fact, um, has he, this whistleblower. There are two aides for Adam Schiff who actually work with this whistleblower in the White House. This has been acknowledged, apparently. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff recruited two former National Security Council aides who worked alongside the CIA whistleblower at the National Security Council during the Trump administration. This was a story from the Washington Examiner. So this innocent whistleblower worked with two people now on Schiff's team Adam Schiff being the Democrat, with pretty much the leader beside Pelosi, the leader of the impeachment effort in the House. He has two staff members who worked with this uh, whistleblower. And then on top of that, you have the whistleblower. Previously, the story was whistleblower had some connection, worked with a uh, one of the Democrat presidential candidates in the past. Turns out that candidate is Joe Biden. So this innocent, naive, thoroughly to be believed, whistleblower whose complaint is allegedly going to be used to take down the presidency of the United States is a former CIA official who didn't hear anything, who worked with two staff members on Adam Schiff's staff, worked with them when they were with the National Security Council, and worked with Joe Biden uh, while he was vice president. This guy is neck deep in cahoots with the Democrats. I mean, I could go into detail after detail of all the connections he has, but this person, we again, we the, supposedly is Eric Ciaramello, is knee deep with the Democrats, neck deep with them, 
And yet the Democrats think this is a sufficient basis to impeach the President of the United States. These are very, very serious times. It's not just serious because obviously, if the impeachment goes forward, it'll consume all of the House, the US House agenda for the rest of President Trump's first term. It'll consume their time, they'll have hearings of allegations, you have headlines out of all the left-wing media every day. Well, so-and-so alluded to, and so-and-so said maybe he heard this. You'll have headlines all putting Trump and impeachment in the same sentence with the idea very, very clearly, very, very manipulatively and intentionally to get the American public thinking somehow Trump, impeachment, they belong together. Maybe Trump should be impeached. We have to demand as American citizens, as patriots, and if you were a voter for Trump, which I assume most of my listeners were, you have to understand these people will take Trump out because his socks didn't match. They'll take him out for anything. They'll claim anything they can find. They will hold, in their view of the Constitution standard, they can say, they can vote. This constitutes an impeachable offense. And there will be, we'll be sitting with, the president impeached, cannot possibly help his reelection chances, and we'll have the Senate where you have rogue, treasonous senators on the GOP side, Mitt Romney and others, kind of hinting maybe they might go along with this. I mean, Romney's been, you know, just a thorn in the Republican side since the day he stepped into the Senate. And before that, frankly, he's been a spineless, he ran a spineless, just ridiculous campaign for the presidency, never could find the courage to actually stand up and articulate the danger of President Obama, the wrongness of President Obama, why people should go with Republicans instead of Obama. He ran a spineless, you know, just tepid presidential campaign, never could criticize Obama, but man, he gets in the Senate and he can find one thing after the next to say about President Trump. And he's reportedly working within the Senate to figure out if he might be able to get enough Republicans to vote for removal. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the U.S. Senate is not going to go for removal. Even the Republican senators who maybe aren't crazy about uh, President Trump, Impeachment is a serious, serious, serious thing. Last question, thing, so, and, and so I don't think it's gonna happen, but the whole idea we're even here over a non-serious charge, a non-serious allegation of what is not wrongdoing by the president, and yet we're this close, maybe this week, to a vote for impeachment. What it really tells you is the Democrats are desperate, desperate, to remove this president. They can see perfectly well he's going to win re-election in 2020 unless they can remove him. They've been trying to remove him since before he was even sworn in in January 2017, trying to find something. This latest hullabaloo over nothing is just the next step. There was a piece I want to quick tell you about. Jim Jordan, who is one of the Republicans in the U.S. Congress who actually has a spine, is strong, is articulate, is speaking up, is doing his job, at least standing up and demanding fairness for this president. He put out a piece, it's called 17 Questions, 17 Questions for the Democrats in this impeachment inquiry. And again, it's just an impeachment inquiry because they haven't held a vote yet. I do think, by the way, one more thing before I get to Jordan, I do think that President Trump, I, I, last week I think I called the show, this segment of the show, something about impeachment hardball. President Trump and his lawyer's willingness to respond to the U.S. House docu- de- demands for documents of the White House, demands for witnesses, their willingness to respond just to say basically no. We're not playing your game, Democrats who run the House. House Democrats, if you want to have a real impeachment, then you launch the official process and then we'll talk. But they tried to through a series of four different changes in rules to make it impossible for President Trump to actually have a chance in this impeachment inquiry or the impeachment process to call his own witnesses, defend himself, see transcripts of the testimony, ask questions of witnesses. 
The Democrats tried to set this up, as I went over last week, but it matters you understand this. They tried to set this up through changes they made in the rules once they had the majority again after the midterm elections of 2018, changed the rules to put President Trump in the worst possible legal position where the Republicans in the U.S. House would have no ability to ask questions, no ability to participate in the process. President Trump would have no ability to question the witnesses before him, to have any due process rights. And I think... President Trump's decision last week, along with his lawyer, to send over that eight-page letter to the House saying, you know what, we're not playing your game. You want to have a real impeachment, you hold a vote, and then we'll, we'll talk about impeachment. It's forcing Nancy Pelosi's hand. It sounds like she is going to go forward and hold that vote this week. I guess we'll find out in the next few days. They also in the House are facing the reality that the Inspector General's report and maybe even Attorney General Barr's investigation and Durham's investigation, but definitely the Inspector General's report is coming out supposedly by the end of this week. Democrats need something in their column getting the American people's attention because I think once that hits the public eye, once that is out there to be read, when you understand what the Inspector General found in terms of the corruption in the Democrat Party inside the cabal that runs the FBI and the DOJ and frankly the CIA, there will be a lot of heads rolling, a lot of nervous people, a lot of Americans saying, wait a minute, what happened to our country? What happened to our rule of law? What happened to our FBI, our Department of Justice, our CIA? We want these people prosecuted. Pelosi wants to have that media time. She wants her headlines, House votes for impeachment, and maybe people won't pay attention to what the Inspector General says. Last quick thing on this topic, I want to just tell you some of the questions Jim Jordan raised, because they were all good questions. And by the way, if you're watching this, uh, whatever you're watching or listening to it, if you want to read this whole email, this whole article that lists all 17 questions Jim Jordan had for the Democrats, you can go to my website, americacanwetalk.org. On the homepage under shows, drop down, list of links, it takes you to all of these articles. This is a great one to understand. 17 awkward questions about Pelosi's impeachment inquiry. It's a great, great piece. He had just one example. Why did the whistleblower, the alleged whistleblower, um, who's more like, he's not really a whistleblower, actually, it kind of elevates him to undo, uh, undeserved status to call him a whistleblower. He's a complainer. He's a, he's a, he's a you know, um, a critic of the president. But whistle, why did he write an 800 word page memo describing the phone call between Trump and Zelensky based on second, secondhand information gleaned from a, a conversation that lasted just a few minutes. A few minute conversation uh, begets an 800 word memo. Why did the whistleblower wait 18 days to file the complaint after describing the call as frightening? So frightened he waited two and a half weeks. It's because actually the memo was being, I can answer this question, memos being cooked up by the team that you know Schiff acknowledges now. That he, he doesn't say he lied. He says, I should have been a little more clear. He said he never met with a whistleblower. Turns out he did, but okay. So this is a whistleblower or the critic, Whiner, using his ability to work with the uh, shift team, the aides on shift team, to come up with the most egregious thing they can come up with. Why and when did the whistleblower communicate with Representative Adam Schiff's staff before filing the complaint? Why is a good point. Why? If you have a whistleblower complaint, you're supposed to be about you see something that's gone wrong and you're determined to expose it. So you write your complaint, you explain what you're upset about, and that is what the whole whistleblower thing is for, is not to be a concocted criti critique of the president. Why didn't Adam Schiff tell his staff, um, tell us, uh, ask the Republicans, he'd met with his staff, had met with the whistleblower? Why didn't the whistleblower just give his memo to the inspector general instead of a seven page complaint dressed up with extraneous citations and media references? Actually, several people familiar with the complaint were saying it read more like a lawyer wrote it. Actually, I'm not going to read all these questions, but they're really good questions. I wanted to do a segment, I wanted to do a segment today just hitting on the reality that this impeachment inquiry is coming down the pike. The Democrats are not pretending. They are nervous. They don't want to have to hold a vote. They don't want to have to embarrass themselves. They don't want to have to deal with close scrutiny of what the whistleblower actually said versus what the transcript says. They don't want the scrutiny that comes once they're focused on President Trump and a, whatever it was, five-minute conversation with Ukrainian President Zelensky 
and when the American public will be contrasting it with the ongoing relationship for years between Vice President Biden and his son serving on the board with absolutely no ability of any kind to justify his position to be on the board of Burisma, making lots of money at it. The Democrats do not want the focus of attention to turn if they get on to this impeachment thing with Trump and the Ukraine, everyone's going to be talking about Biden and the Ukraine. This is something that the Democrats are trying to steer us away from. So it's, a, it's a, an amazing story going on in Washington. Uh, clearly, we're not even close to the end of it. Um, but I think it's important to keep track of the players, to recognize the Democrats have gotten exactly nowhere in coming up with anything even approaching an impeachable offense by this president. I want to turn now and talk about uh, Beto O'Rourke. I'm embarrassed to say he is from the state of Texas. Beto O'Rourke, a Democrat presidential candidate, he's truly honestly been polling at like zero, one, or two or something. He's not a, a serious contender. You know, it looks like unless someone else gets in the race, we're going to have the Democrat presidential contender will probably be uh, either uh, Joe Biden or uh, Elizabeth Warren. I think everyone else is kind of fading out. But Beto, there was a forum last week, it was a CNN town hall, and at this CNN town hall, there was a question posed to Beto O'Rourke, and I want to have the extremely wonderful producer, Matt, he is really a wonderful producer, Matt, put, play this for you, we'll talk about it for just a moment. This is from your LGBTQ plan, and here's what you write, this is a quote. Freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. Do you think religious institutions, uh, like colleges, churches, charities, should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Yes. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Back when the Supreme Court handed down the Obergefell decision and basically said, you know, that all states had to honor same-sex marriage, many commentators at that time said, myself included on, on my own show, on other people's show, where I was a substitute hosting and people's show around that time, I was saying, this is going to raise more questions than it solves. It's going to raise more questions than is solved by this decision. One of those questions is, what degree of protection now does the federal government give to people who do not support same-sex marriage? So we had discussion even back at the time of the decision. The question about things like, what if you are a church, a religious institution, a religious college, you know, all sorts of things that you could be. What if you were one of those entities and you actually believe that the scriptures teach that marriage is between one man and one woman, which, you know, throughout all of human history, throughout, you know, Christian history and Judaism and even Islam, the idea of marriage has been clearly one man and one woman. So, you know, what is going to happen to churches and religious schools, institutions, if they want to continue teaching that marriage is what the Bible says it is, a man and a woman? Is that going to be allowed? And the defenders of the Obergefell decision, the advocates for gay marriage at the time said, that is ridiculous. That's a ridiculous hyperbole. Obviously, nothing is going to involve regulating the churches. Nothing is going to punish the churches. This is a silly, absurd concern. You're just, you know, you're just grasping at straws, really mocked and dismissed. The argument that people might be actually worried about religious freedom and the right and willingness and the ability of churches and religious institutions to teach their view of marriage. Well, here we are, folks. We're in the 2019 presidential candidacy, the, the debate with the Democrat presidential candidates on CNN, and Beto O'Rourke is saying that if a Christian church supports traditional marriage, interprets the Bible to say they support traditional marriage, they should lose their tax-exempt status. Now, on the tax-exempt part, folks, I have to say, among the reasons federal law provided long ago, provided for tax-exempt status for churches was to avoid excessive entanglement because they did not want to have the government litigating, criminally penalizing, and investigating churches. It was a very healthy recognition. We're better off, the U.S. government and this constitutional republic, 
were better off with a hands-off attitude. That was the reason, you know, instead of having churches having to argue about, you know, should this be considered income or is this really some other form of money that came in that isn't really income, the, the, having the government, the IRS suing churches, all of that was part of the reason was to prevent the entanglement of the government, of, of government and religion. That thought was very prevalent at a time in America where more people thought that religion had a significant place in our culture, in our fabric, in our country, in our national identity. That the Christian faith and the Jewish faith had very strong place and a right to recognition, to be honored in the American culture, in our American system of laws. Where we are in 2019 is that Beto O'Rourke is saying that the left-wing view of anything goes in marriage, doesn't matter, it's two people, and you know, before long, it'll be three people, and all sorts of other combinations. What he's saying is, left-wing secularism trumps what the Bible teaches. The LGBTQ agenda that advocates for same-sex marriage must be honored by the federal government more than the federal government will be honoring its continued commitment to have, to keep, to not entangle the government and religion. Beto O'Rourke is saying that he more worships the LGBTQ agenda, the left-wing worldview, than he does the right of religious freedom of churches. On top of that, I want you to think about how this would work. So suppose he became, he's not gonna become president, but someone who thinks like him became president. So you get into the Oval Office and you hear about a church that is holding a uh, revival meeting and they're holding a revival meeting because they want to talk about the importance of renewing the, the commitment of marriage, the, you know, the institution of marriage in our society and they're celebrating traditional marriage. Is that enough to pull their tax exempt status? And then if they do, and they're going to have the church sue the federal government to say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're still a church, we still will get our tax exempt status. And, and that's just one example. But the other point of this, of this just cavalier attitude, and it's not even really cavalier, that is too kind to, to Beto O'Rourke. Beto O'Rourke and the American left are desperate to get the attention and get the vote of the most radical elements of our society. They will say anything, anything the LGBTQ world wants them to say, anything. Whatever the agenda is, whatever the message is, you can count on Beto and the American left to embrace it. So you're at the point where they're willing to say they're more concerned about humoring and honoring the LGBTQ agenda and mission and same-sex marriage than they are honoring the right of a church to teach what it believes the Bible teaches. This is a complete slap in the face to people of faith in this country. And actually, to be really clear, at the time, people of that little exchange, people were saying, well, you know, gee, I noticed he didn't, you know, say what he would do about mosques because the Islamic faith also teaches marriage as man and a woman or, you know, a man and four women, whatever they want to do. But he did clarify later, apparently, someone asked him, well, what, are you even going to apply that to mosque? He said, oh, yeah, yes, I am. So, okay, that's where he is. But understand, it is a reflection of the culture of our country that a serious candidate for the presidency of the United States is completely willing to mock the right of Christian and J Christian churches and Jewish synagogues and Islamic mosques, mock and belittle their right to say they actually believe in the doctrines they teach. That's what he's saying. They're to be mocked, ridiculed, it's ridiculous. They aren't allowed to think that, they aren't allowed to say that. I can, I can just belittle them because they dared say something that violates the uh, church of the LGBTQ. And, and, and I'll tell you the last thing, folks, that this why it's bothersome, I'll turn one more story after this, but it's bothersome on the free speech level. What if all the church does, a church does, a mosque or a synagogue is in Sunday school, in classes with little children, when a Sunday school teacher is talking about what marriage is and says, well, you know, our faith, our church believes that marriage is between a man and a woman, and here's where it is in the Bible, this is what we believe in, this is what marriage is, and 
So some kid goes home and tells his parents, and the parents report him, is that enough to lose your tax-exempt status? I'm not saying the tax-exempt status is such a be-all and end-all. I mean, it is a great thing that keeps the government and churches from suing each other, so it's a good thing, but it's really a symbol of respect for the importance and the primacy of faith in our country that we years ago decided to keep the taxing system away from the churches in this country. And that would be apparently with Beto work just fine to eliminate, just fine to ignore. This is it. And so he's really saying, ultimately you're going to get to folks. So if, if a church loses their tax exam status, what about people? When does free speech come along? What about the free speech right of the pastor or the Sunday school teacher or anyone at a church or anyone at a synagogue or a mosque? What about their right to speak? And he's saying you get punished for speaking. We'll take away your tax exam status and will punish you for your speech. Very unwise, I mean, I do, I think he's, as I say, he's desperate, he's looking for anything to get some votes, but he's not that far afield from the way left-wing thinkers think. The elevation of the LGBTQ agenda really kind of trumps everything else in the left-wing world mindset where religion is to be cast aside as something kind of silly, antiquated, and irrelevant to the modern era. And I hope there are enough American voters who can tell them that they are wrong. Last story for today, and I actually was looking forward to spend a little bit of time with this story. I want to start with, so also at that CNN um, debate or CNN forum on LGBTQ issues, um, there was a, a person, they had you know, questions from the audience, they had a person stand up to ask a question, and it actually ended up going to Julian Castro, one of the Democrat candidates for president. I want to ask Matt, the completely wonderful producer, if he can play this, it's a short little clip from this question. Angeles, she currently supports Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Shay, what's your question? Um, it's Shea Diamond. Shea Diamond. Put that on record. Okay. <laughs> it's on the record. Thank you. Yes, honey. It's violence to, to misgender or to alter a name of a trans person. So let's always get that right first. Um, so the first um, thing I would like to say is the National Trans Visibility March happened last week. And uh, we didn't see uh, much representation from cisgender people. And we want to just know if you are elect elected as president, will you have a group of transgender people to counsel you or advise you? Okay, I didn't play his answer because you, you know, he's going to say, oh my gosh, yes, whatever you say. That person asking the question, I want you to listen to the quote that person said. First of all, because her name was, and I think it's a guy dressed as a woman, but whatever. Shia corrects the pronunciation and says, it is violence to misgender or to misstate the name of a transgender person. Okay, violence, please spare me. We have the media and the left wing in this country have so elevated this transgender status to the point that she, he, whatever that person was, felt perfectly comfortable saying in a nationally televised forum that it is violence to misgender someone. If someone says, I know I look like a woman and I'm dressed like a woman and I talk like a woman, and I'm biological, woman, but today I'm a man. If you say, sir, to that person, you are committing violence. The absurdity of that is almost unspeakable. So one level just flat out absurdity and I'm going to tell you, every Democrat candidate is going to give the same answer, more or less, that Julian Castro gave. So, oh my, yes, I'll be bending, bending over backwards, whatever you tell me to do, I'll listen to you. And she also, that questioner, was complaining about cisgender people not showing up at the transgender national parade, which I didn't even know there was one. But the idea of cisgender, all she means is men and women. That's what cisgender is. A woman who's biologically, humanly a woman, and acts like a woman who's a woman. That's what it says, that's a, that's a woman. And a male, same thing. Man, biologically, humanly, uh, you know, is a male, but she, or that person who's asking the questions, is t calling it, referring to everyone who's not transgender as cisgender. So we've let the manipulation of language take hold. We've let the advocacy for transgenderism take hold to where you have a serious candidate for President of the United States saying, oh yes, I'm gonna have a cisgender advisory board. But even worse than that, what I really wanna to get to in this segment is this. All of this honoring of the confusion around transgenderism actually hurts children. I'm gonna share two stories with you because I want you to understand, 
to be clear where I stand on it, if you're an adult and you're not asking the taxpayers to pay for it and you want to change, change your gender, it's legal in this country, you can engage in the surgery, you can engage in the uh, treatments needed before surgery, you can change your gender. It's legal. No one's going to stop you. No one's going to punish you. But because the effort of the LGBTQ and the T being transgender, the effort of the transgender community is to normalize the idea that there really are many, many people who happen to be born, you know, female, who really are confused, they, are, they have gender fluidity, they really are male, they just happen to come with female parts, or you know, the same with guys, that they were born with, as a male and they are physically a male, but they are, you know, they're just not, they're just not, they were mis, misassigned their gender at their birth, and so that is a correction thing. The difference between honoring a choice of an adult to change his or her gender if they choose to, and the idea that we're gonna culturally accept the idea that gender is a choice, it's, it's, a, it's a random assignment at birth versus the fact and reality of your biology, that actually hurts children. I was on the phone over the weekend with someone who's putting on some conference, and she's talking about trying to get the schools to, to get kind of, to respect the idea of parents do not want their children indoctrinated into the transgender agenda. And she was saying that the um, schools now, they have, a, they have kind of arms locked in public, some public school districts between Planned Parenthood and the LGBTQ activists to make the norm be that as the youngest age they ever begin discussion of anything about the facts of life, they refer to people as assigned a gender at birth that may not really be what you are. Small children taught that. So the kids go home like, mom, you know, my teacher said, I mean, these are, these are very, this is an insidious, this is not just, it is a tiny, tiny, tiny percent of America. Transgenderism is not even, you know, it's 0.0001 or something like that of transgenders, and yet we're changing our public school curriculum, we're changing the way we speak, we're acting like it's a normal thing at a presidential debate to have a transgender team come and advise you how to, but I wanna to get to how it hurts children. Two stories, one is, right here in the great state of Texas, there's a case, it's actually going to trial tomorrow. It involves a Texas couple who are divorced. They have two boys. The dad gets the boys sometimes, and the mom also um, has custody of the boys. The mom, who is a, um, she's, I'm sorry, I'm get to where she's a pediatrician. She took one of their two boys to a, uh, some kind of counselor at a very young age, like three years old, and the counselor being gay, the mom trying to make the argument that this three-year-old is really transgender, and she wants to chart, start the process of changing this little boy's gender from boy to girl. A child, a small child. Well, the kid is now, I think, seven. Might have just turned eight. The battle is going on between the parents. They're going to court, going to trial this week, starting tomorrow. The mom wanting the judge to allow her to move forward with an eight-year-old boy and bringing about his transition from boy to girl. The dad is saying, little whatever his name is, doesn't want to be a girl. When he's with me, he's a boy. He plays with his brother. They pick up bugs. They play cops and robbers. They act like boys. They play sports. They're boys. And the mom, who it appears is fixated in this idea of trans transgender as being the coolest thing ever, she is pushing to have a court rule that this little boy, that she can begin, as I say, eight years old is the oldest he is, to begin first the process of transitioning him through all the pre-surgery kind of care they give, the uh, hormone treatments and whatever else they do, and then ultimately get him around to where he's going to become a girl. The kid, according to the dad, tells the dad, I, I wanna be a boy. Even when the dad takes him to counseling and says, okay, you talk to him yourself. When the mom's not around, little boy says, I'm a boy. The mom has gotten the course to the point where she got an order in this case to stop telling or to, to the husband that he had to stop using male pronouns and talking to his own son. I'm just telling you, this is the danger of transgenderism. 
whole other thing if you're an adult, I don't think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not in favor of it, but as an adult, it's a free country. But the problem is the American left has pushed this idea to the point, is normalizing it in the minds of unstable people who actually begin engaging as transgender, tran, sorry, transgenderism when they, they are just creating a mountain, a, a horrific, destroying this kid's life process. Other quick story, and Matt the Wonderful, I have a picture of this young girl. I want to quick put up this picture of this young girl. This is her senior high school picture. Very pretty, beautiful young girl. She actually wrote a piece in the, in the Daily Signal, I think it was. It's up on my website, and it's called, and her piece was called, I spent a year as a trans man. Doctors failed me at every turn. To summarize what she had to say, her parents were divorced. She got interested in transgenderism in part because she was living with her dad. She decided she was a lesbian, so she's kind of dating girls. The dad found out. He kicked her out of the house. She had to go live with her mom, living with the mom. And she started reading online, trying to understand what transgenderism is. A couple of her quotes, a couple of her quotes, when she tried to look into transgenderism, she felt like she was fast-tracked. They only mentioned to you the bra how brave transitioning is, how good it's going to be for you. Everything I found was, was pro-transgender authors. No one's writing about this might not be a good idea. She went to doctors. None of the doctors would say to her, I'm not, this is not a really good idea. Take your time. She had one person, one counselor met with her like for five times, a therapist, and she agreed to, she, this young girl, decided to transition to a guy because she's uncomfortable with her lesbian dating thing. So she had five sessions with somebody who gave her authority to begin the hormone treatment. She basically goes to the hormone center on her 19th birthday. The doctor just hands her drugs. Yeah, get out of here. Here's a prescription. Go home and take care of it yourself. She talked about all of these different way, times along the way, professionals she talked to, doctors, counselors, talking to her, saying, you know, just everyone encouraging her, no one questioning her, no one saying, are you really sure? You seem like you're just a little bit unhappy. No one. She spent a year as a guy. The only way, and fortunately she had no body altering surgery, major hormones, major changes in her body, but she had no surgery. She got to the point after a year into this of talking to her grandfather, who was her beloved family member who said to her, honey, Please stop. Please stop doing this. They had a great conversation and she bailed out of it. It has destroyed her life is too strong a word. She is, she is not that beautiful young girl you saw in the picture. She has developed masculine qualities. She's gained weight. She's, I mean, she has all sorts of horrific things have happened to her because no one had the courage in all the medical professions to say, not a good idea, honey. So. With that, I would say, my, to wrap up that story, there is simply no reason for people to not speak up or put the other way. It's important for people to speak up, to recognize this liberal transgenderism agenda hurts children. Just think of the boy going to court this week with his parents. Think of that girl who's just no longer that lovely young girl and there were, because so few people in America are willing to speak up to her and say, honey, this is not a good idea. And now, my friends, I'll tell you why these stories we talked about today matter to you. To start with, we have Columbus Day. Christopher Columbus was unquestionably brave. He set sail facing unknowns of distance, weather, adequacy of supplies, zero assurance of safe return. Did it four times. Christopher Columbus was imperfect. In fact, he committed or permitted violence toward indigenous people, as did Muslim marauders and others in the same era. Anti-Christopher Columbus crowd is silent on Muhammad and Muslims larger, more brutal, and 1,400-year conquest. Why? Hysteria among Christopher about, against Christopher Columbus is leftist undermining of America, one of the many ways to devalue the extraordinary greatness of the country founded because of Christopher Columbus's exploration on individual freedom. It's designed, this hysteria is designed to divide the American people, plant seeds of doubt and racial anger. We can honor Christopher Columbus's memory 
and the memories of indigenous people who suffered and died in the era of exploration. We can honor both. On the impeachment sham ramping up, Pelosi, Schiff, Nadler, all of them, are making a mockery of the Constitution and the rule of law. Whistleblower is confirmed as a stone-cold, left-wing partisan, former advisor to Joe Biden. The whistleblower is not to be identified. All he wants to do is testimony by letter. Not identified or cross-examined. Testifying by letter. The actual transcript of Trump's call refutes the entirety of the West of the whistleblower's claim. Other witnesses testify behind closed doors with orchestrated, selective, spin-supporting leaking from Schiff. Based on this, Democrats are going to vote to impeach the duly elected president. It is unconscionable. It's America-destroying behavior. The American people must demand that it stops. And the LGBTQ trumping God? Beto, tax-exempt status must be pulled from churches who don't accept the LGBTQ doctrine or theology. This is the left attempting to impose its religion of atheism and secularism on America. This is a left disdain for God, the Bible, and Christianity. This is not just an assault on the tax status of churches and religious institutions. It is an assault on freedom of religion and freedom of speech for everyone. We are witnessing a descent into leftist totalitarianism. Americans must rise up, speak up for our churches and freedom of speech to stop and reverse them. Liberal lies hurt kids. The LGBTQ chant at SCOTUS last week, remember we played that when they had that case for the Supreme Court, the chant was trans women are women, was intended to urge the Supreme Court to rule the individuals are not the sex that their biology and body parts say they are, but that they are instead whatever gender or sex they want to be. This defiance of reality harms young people and the most vulnerable among us. A Dallas trial starting this week will end in a court ruling. Whether a mother can start the transitioning of a little boy into a girl at the mother's demand and over the father's objection, and according to the dad, over the boy's objection. More young people are coming out of the transgendering experience, emotionally scarred, physically compromised, and wondering where were the adults when I needed them. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Please tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time, right here to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. Talk to you next time. Can We Talk? Truth About America.